Okay, well, this evening I want to start off by reading you a poem. It's one some of you may have encountered. It's actually quoted quite a lot, um, and it's one you might even have heard spoken before. But it's a poem by Pablo Neruda, and it's something I want to, some of the issues in it I want to address this evening. It's a, I think it's a rather lovely poem. A great tranquillity emerges when we let go of the futile desire to control everything. Now we will count to twelve, and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. Let's stop for a second, and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. Fishermen in the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man gathering salt would not look at his hurt hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on clean clothes and walk with their brothers in the shade doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with total inactivity. Life is what it is about. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving, and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when, as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count up to twelve, and you keep quiet, and I will go. Many of you might know that poem because it's actually quoted by John Kabat-Zinn in his book Full Catastrophe Living. For those of you who have a copy, it's right at the back of it if you want to see the full poem. What I want to take up is really, in a sense, uh, the theme of this evening is uh, really encapsulated in the first line. And perhaps as we go through the week, we'll address some of the other issues that arise in that poem as well. A great tranquility emerges when we let go of the futile effort to control everything. Um, I think this is part of the Western malaise is our attempt to control everything. I once came across a saying, some of you have heard me speak before, will have heard me quote this before. It's one of those little sayings that you really wish you could copyright it because it's so good. And it went like this, relax, nothing is under control. (laughs) And in a way for me that encapsulates a lot of what the Buddha teaches um, because he's really saying, relax, nothing really is under our control at all. We have this uh, almost feeling that we can control things, but we can't. They're out of our control. Impermanence is written into the warp and woof of life. It's the undercurrent. It's that which threatens, in many senses, particularly when we think about death, is that which threatens to make life look rather futile. All of our strivings, all the things that we do, and where do they end up, as Jean-Paul Sartre once said, they end up in this sort of futility of death. It makes life, as he put it, a futile passion. Now, unless one doesn't want to go down that pessimistic route, because I can see you're all looking rather miserable at the moment, (laughs) I'll try and cheer you up a bit about this, because... Although this is the theme of what the Buddha is talking a lot about in his life and what actually the whole aspect of meditation is directed towards is actually understanding and really beginning to embrace impermanence. Um, The impermanence that he's talking about in some senses that we embrace is not a miserable impermanence. It's one that's filled with a great deal of joy. It's also filled with a great deal of understanding and insight into the fact that that is the way things are. Even in the text, the very ancient text, which is the Pali texts of the early Indian tradition, 
uh, the final recorded words of the Buddha go something like this. Um, and I'll put them in their more elegant fashion, the way they're actually put in the text. It says something like this. All compounded phenomena are impermanent. Strive on diligently. Now, really put in modern language, that really says something like, everything's impermanent, get on with it. <laughs> yeah, that's what the Buddha is saying. <clears throat> As you can see, even at the end of his life, if those are um, the last recorded words of the Buddha, you know, those which were remembered by those close disciples of his, he is not giving a great metaphysical tract or some mystical theory. What he is giving is, if you like, in a very pithy way, a teaching about where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in the midst of impermanence. Um, or as the poet Rilke once said in his, one of his Duino elegies, and I think it's in the first Duino elegy, that we're in this world forever taking leave. You know, this is the way that we find ourselves. So the task in many ways becomes one of how do we confront this? How do we deal with this? How do we live meaningful lives? Because, and again most of you will know this, one of the things that the Buddha is really trying to get us to see is, often the way it's put, is the first of the noble truths, or actually more correctly translated, the ennobling truths which is the truth of distress or suffering. And one of the causes, not the most proximate cause, but one of the causes for a lot of our distress in the world is the fact that things and people change on us. They don't remain the same. However we rush around the world in a great sort of hurry and flurry trying to make certainties, to create certainties for ourselves. One of the great mythologies, particularly, I'm not going to speak so much about the Eastern world tonight, but certainly about the Western world, one of the great mythologies of the Western world has been the desire for certainty. This goes right back to the foundation even of science. It was a search for scientific certainties, something we can build knowledge on. Now, this in a sense has permeated the Western consciousness, permeated the way that we see ourselves. Wanting others and ourselves in some way to be certain. Perhaps I dare might add it unchanging to a degree. I always remember when I first heard the teaching of impermanence when I was living in India. And the first thing that struck me was absolutely the full weight of this teaching. Because the teachers who I studied with didn't say, well, only this is impermanent and that is impermanent and this bit's impermanent. It was saying everything is impermanent. There is nothing that will remain the same. My first thought was terror <laughs> at the absolutely overwhelming sense of that. The more I thought about it and the more I relaxed into that idea, and that's all it remained for a long, 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 long time as an idea, Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, the more I relaxed into that, the more, in a sense, there was this deep sense of freedom that came from it. The freedom from the desire, and this is a very strong word I want to come back to, the freedom from the desire to want to control. This is not a recipe I might add at this stage for not doing anything, but it's really knowing what you can do and knowing what is outside of your control and really beginning to understand that. To relax into uncertainty, the wisdom and the freedom that comes with uncertainty instead of trying to grapple with and create certainties for ourselves and for others as well. This is not an easy thing to, in a sense, get at all. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning it on really the first night, although I gave a talk, obviously, a very brief one last night and laid some broad brushstrokes, the reason I'm really mentioning this on the first night is one of the contents, if you like, one of the insights of insight meditation is insight into impermanence. 
in a way, if you wanted the complete revelation of what <coughs> insight meditation is about, it's about three things, that's all. It's not, in a sense, a mystical experience. It's insight into three fundamental facets of the way that we are in this world and the way that things are in this world. Is that they are distressful, suffering, they are impermanent, and the more difficult one is they are not self, which in a sense is a corollary of the second one, but I'll explain that much more for those who are not familiar with that. So actually what constitutes for the Buddhist tradition liberating insight is insight into those three things. Insight into dukkha, a word which is the word that's usually translated as suffering, distress. I've even um, seen it translated as stress, let alone distress. Impermanence, and then of course, lack of self, not self. That is what constitutes the liberating insight that Buddhism speaks about, particularly at its very, very earliest stages. It's really getting those things. Not understanding them simply with the head. Because I think, in a way, it's not a difficult concept to understand, is it? If I say to you, everything is impermanent, I'm sure we can all pretty well get that as a concept. You know, even if your first language isn't English, you'll get that. You know, everything is impermanent. However, the big thing is to get it in your experience. You know, to live it. Uh, the great Japanese thinker, Dogen, actually spoke about that actually liberation was living impermanence, being able to live that impermanence in this world. Yeah. So it's that movement that we're trying to affect between understanding it as a concept to actually understanding it with our hearts, to understanding it with our bodies to make it a fully embodied, rounded understanding, a penetrating insight, as the way it's often referred to in the texts, into the nature of reality, into the nature of the way things are. Coming back to the Buddha's final words, he's not, as I said, he's not giving us some wonderful metaphysical theory. He's saying, this is it, get on with it. Yeah. And the whole of his teaching, in a sense was aimed at how do you get on with it? How do you make life meaningful? How do you make it? How do you live this life in the face of this radical contingency of which I spoke last night and picked up again this evening? Because it is radical. There is no thing at all which is not touched by impermanence. Even the Himalaya continue to raise each year, rise each year, by a fraction of a, you know, fractional amounts each year. The oldest humid edifices continue to, you know, despite all of our ways of trying to preserve them, continue to deteriorate, and they will do. On the very, very personal level, all of us will be struck by loss at some point in time. We will be touched by it. All of us, probably from since a fairly early age, have been cognizant of the fact that we are impermanent. You know, life is a fragile thing. It's not something that's going to be around forever. As I said, you know, in that more pessimistic vein that I started off with, that of course Sartre says, you know, one of the great French philosophers is actually saying, well, actually it's this notion of death or this fact that we're going to die that makes life such a futile passion. All of the things that we do, in a sense, are worth nothing because of this. This tradition, the Buddhist tradition, is turning that on its head and actually saying it is because of death that life is meaningful. Because actually, without it, you wouldn't even begin to make the choices that you do in life. In some senses, even if it's not consciously recognised, consciously there as a thought of our own finitude, of our own, in fact, of our own possibility of not being at all, that 
we actually get on and we make choices in life. In Buddhist cosmology, which is actually no different from genuine in, gen, general Indian cosmology, there is a class of, well, I say creatures, a class of figures who are known as devas, which is usually translated as gods with a small g. Um, the difference between Hinduism and Buddhism, for those who wish to know, is actually that what the Buddha did was he demoted the gods. He made them subject to finitude. The gods were immortal in Hindu mythology. In Buddhism, they become mortal. Uh, But unlike human beings, they live supposedly tremendously long lives, enormously long lives, so that they can't actually feel their finitude, that they're going to come to an end. And as a result, they do nothing whatsoever. They don't do anything particularly good, and they don't do anything particularly bad. Um, But as a result, their little, if you like, merit bank balance that gets them to this state... You know, this good store of karma runs out. And when you've reached the top, because this is what it is, the top, the only way you can go is down. You know, and so they supposedly, according to Buddhist you know, cosmology, fall into low rebirths. So if you think about impermanence and the way it actually literally permeates our lives, it is that thought acknowledged or unacknowledged that actually makes us make often the decisions that we do in our lives. So in a way we all live with the thought of impermanence. We all live with finitude. Tibetans have a lovely little phrase which is, there is one thing that's absolutely certain, death. There is one thing that's absolutely uncertain, when. (laughs) You know, that keeps you on your toes. (laughs) <laughs> if you actually take that to, you know, to heart. Um, and I might add, by the way, having lived in Tibetan society for a long time, um, Tibetans are the least pessimistic people I know. You know they, they laugh and joke a lot, and it's a very joyful society in general. But they have this little saying, which is constantly repeated. You hear it around in Tibetan society all the time. You know, yet it doesn't add for morbidity, for pessimism about life. So when we engage in Vipassana meditation, what we're trying to unveil is the structures of what is, but not as a thought. We can all do that. You can go away and read the books if you just want the thoughts about it. This is what the Buddha said. Things are impermanent, they're not self, and they are suffering. You You can all go away and read that. For it to really touch you, then it somehow has to touch the heart. It really has to connect with you. Now, if that little, well, little thought, that big thought that I offered out at the beginning, out of the Buddha's teaching, that everything is impermanent, and we really, really took it to heart, why would we get so upset? And we're talking about tragedies here, when we break something or lose something, yeah, which is what we do. We get upset usually about these trivial losses in our lives um, of things which disappear or get broken or no longer work. You know, um, when things no longer work, you know, they're fuming at them or whatever happens. Actually, the writer M.R. James had a wonderful word for this. He called it the malice of inanimate objects. <laughs> they're trying to get back at us in some way. <laughs> yeah. If it was the case that we really took this on board, then there wouldn't be this rage, there wouldn't be this upset, there wouldn't be this, you know, the emotions that often surround even the most trivial of what I call the aspects of impermanence that we encounter. With a thorough comprehension, and I mean a thorough assimilation of this into one's being, then there doesn't have to be this upset. And this can be across the board into the more serious senses of loss that we have to encounter. Because none of us will be untouched by death as we go through our lives. From the deaths of pets, possibly as children, to the death of parents and other loved ones as we go through life. None of us will be untouched by that. You know, the Buddha, in a particular story, some of you may know, the story of Kita Gosami, you know, which is actually a story of a lady who comes to the Buddha with a dead child. 
and says to the Buddha, you know, you're a great sage, can you bring him back to life again? Can you bring my child back to life? And instead of the Buddha sort of going, well, everything is impermanent, you really must understand this, what he gave her was a little task. He said, go and knock on the door of every house in the village and see if you can get a mustard seed from a house that's been untouched by death. And if you can bring that mustard seed back to me, I can bring your child to life. And of course, of course, the whole point of the story is that there is no house in the village that has been untouched by death. Everything has been touched by death. So one of the tasks that we are really engaging in, in Vipassana meditation, in insight meditation, in the insight into what is, is this real thorough comprehension of this fundamental condition that we all find ourselves in. It is part of our existentiality. We cannot avoid it. We can deny it, but like all good denials, it will come back with a vengeance. <laughs> you, know, you can only keep things down for so long until you know, reality obtrudes into your life. No matter how hard you run away from it and how strongly you might try to avoid it. So the Buddha's fundamental teaching is really very, very realistic. Even his own demise and death, he jokes about it towards the end of his life. um, Towards the end of his life, he says to his attendant, he says, you know, he says, I find it more and more difficult to get going in the morning. He said, this old body is like an old cart. It's only kept going by being held together by straps. (laughs) He's actually joking about it. And then... Right at the very end of his life, when he's dying, uh, basically there's his attendant, Ananda, who's his close attendant for many, many years, who's basically crying because the Buddha's going to die soon. And the Buddha basically says to him, he says, have you actually been listening to anything I've been talking about? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's very salutary. (laughs) Yeah. Because he's been teaching for 45 years and he's been teaching these sorts of things for 45 years. The constant flux of existence being one of the main aspects of our existentiality, the way that we find ourselves in the world. Now, of course, the way that we find ourselves averagely in our everyday experience in the world is looking for certainties looking for something to grasp onto, looking for something we can really pin ourselves down to. In many ways, the early Buddhist tradition is lacking in consolation in providing any of that. It doesn't provide you with any certainties whatsoever. It provides nothing other than the idea that you can be liberated from the forms of distress in which you find yourself enmeshed at this present time. It gives you that as the hope in this practice. It's very realistic, as I say, I keep using that word, but it's very realistic in bringing us back to that is the only thing we can hope for. Nibbana or Nirvana which many of you will know, those with more experience and those even with lesser experience, is the culmination, is the Buddhist goal. But it's not a Buddhist heaven. It's a state of being. It's a way of being in this world. It's actually a verb form in the original languages, which means that it's indicating it's something that's done. And it's done from a point of being existentially embodied. So nirvana itself is not some hope of, a, of another better place. Um, in a way, again, kind of summing up a lot of the Buddhist teaching from the early texts, the Buddha is saying, this is where you find yourself, this is where you have your problems, and this is where you can solve your problems. And one of the big problems that we have, coming back to the theme of the main theme of the evening, is impermanence. That's one of the big problems you have. It's one of those that's going to continue to impinge on you. Often on a daily basis, small losses. Even that getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror, and things have changed. (laughs) Again. (laughs) 
Yeah. That's one of the small losses that we have, just on a, on a little daily basis. Yeah. The losses and the change of environment, change in working conditions, change in family, perhaps with children growing up, leaving home. All of these sorts of things, these are the real issues that we have to deal with. So the problems that arise, and part of the problem that we have is the dukkha, I'm going to use this word and explain it, the dukkha that arises through impermanence, through change. Now this word dukkha, it's... it's one of these words that in, in practitioner groups I lo- would love to naturalize because all of the words that you use in translated form somehow miss the mark um, of what it actually means. So dukkha itself is the word that's usually translated and if you go to a popular book on Buddhism you'll always find it translated as suffering. I glossed it a little bit and said last night, well, actually, I prefer to use the word distress because I think it picks it up. It's not quite so heavy. But even that, I find, doesn't really capture what's actually happening with this word. The closest you can get in English to the word would be something like the totality of unsatisfactory experience. That would be it. Everything that you don't want that happens to you. From the minutest things that you don't want to the tragedies in your life. Now many of those will be involved, as I've indicated, and will be about changes which happen. Losses. The sorts of things I've already described. So it's that which we find unsatisfactory, that which we find distressing in our lives, that which we don't find quite right. Um, often a feeling that, and I don't know if you've ever had this, you have to check this out for yourself, that life isn't quite giving me what I want. Yeah. <coughs> but even when I get what I want, I'm not getting what I want. <laughs> yeah. We often have that experience, don't we? Oh, I've got the perfect thing, but it's not quite the right (laughs) colour. Or whatever it might be. I joke about this, but obviously it's quite serious. So it's the totality of all of these things that culminate, in many senses, as a feeling of, and I can understand why it's translated often as stress, of a stressfulness in life. Uh, a, A basic friction that is constantly there, often at a very low level, sometimes at a much higher level when we're confronted by really big things that we don't like and we don't want to happen to us. Now the Buddha speaks very specifically about what he calls two darts or two arrows. He said there is the arrow of what happens to you. You So for example, let's speak about something fairly simple. The arrow, say, perhaps of having a physical pain through illness or injury or whatever. I have the physical pain. But he says then what we go and do is we add another arrow to it. We add another dart to it, which is the resistance to the what is happening, to the pain, to the injury. And that is about not wanting something that we add this second arrow. Now the first one, the Buddha is saying, I can do absolutely nothing about, and you can do absolutely nothing about, you know, outside of taking the relevant medication and looking after yourself and things like that. But if you have something which is physical, um, and just keeping it this, at this level at the moment, if you have something that's physical, you can't avoid it. You know, it's happened. There's a story again in the texts where the Buddha is walking along the road, and he's because it's barefoot in India at that period of time, he steps on a shard or a splinter of stone which penetrates his foot. And it says it gives him immense pain. Yes, but then goes on to add, but it gives him no dukkha. Yes, it gives him no suffering, if you want to use this old translation. It gives him no distress yes, other than the physical pain. 
Now, what this is indicating is that the phenomena that we're dealing with and attempting to deal with in any of the meditation forms in Buddhism and its, and its vast thought forms, its philosophies and that, is that we're not trying to deal with eliminating the what is, but actually dealing with the what is psychologically. So the tradition is founded on a profound psychological approach to the ways that we find ourselves. So it's not about creating fantasies about things being completely and utterly different, but learning strategies and ways of dealing with that which cannot be avoided. And through our lives, as I've indicated right since the beginning of this talk this evening, that we won't avoid death, we won't avoid change, we won't get everything that we want in life, and we certainly will not avoid all of the distressing factors that happen in the world upon which we have absolutely no control whatsoever. So what are we left with? Because that can all sound very pessimistic, can't it? I can't do this and I can't do that and I can't do that and so on and so forth. What we can deal with is our minds. In other words, the psychological approaches that we take to the unavoidable phenomena that we are likely to encounter in this world. So that instead of resistance and rejection coming into our relationship with what is happening, there becomes a relationship of perhaps relaxing to to a degree. Now, I use that word guardedly, and perhaps I will explain this as we go through the week. But it means certainly taking up a different psychological stance. Now, much of the things that are happening in ordinary life are happening so fast and are happening so quickly, we naturally, of course, fall back on psychological patterns, old habits and ways of dealing with things. Now, this, in Buddhist terminology, this this tendency or prevalency to fall back on old psychological patterns as ways of dealing with the phenomena that we encounter, whatever is happening to us in our lives, is used in Buddhist terminology and it's called sangsara. Literally it means going through a round of birth, death and rebirth. It's derived from a root in the original languages which means to go round in circles. So what it's pointing to fundamentally is a circularity in our experience. Do you ever feel that? You feel like you're going round in circles? You're making the same mistakes now as you did many, many years ago? Well, in this explanation, the reason for that is is because we tend to fall back on old habit patterns, old ways of doing things, which in a sense perpetuate that circularity. Now, things are not identical which arise, but we have a prevalency or a tendency to deal with them in very, very similar ways. To bring the same stuff, if you want to put it in very kind of colloquialism, in a colloquial jargon, to bring the same stuff repeatedly to experience. In fact, one of the more pessimistic ways of looking at the early teachings is that do we ever experience anything new? Because isn't it that we just experience everything through stuff that we bring to it? Often historical stuff that we keep bringing repeatedly to our experience. As a consequence of that, if that is the case, and I'm just pointing this up because it connects with something I said last night, we lose something which is fundamental to our real sense of being in this world, which is a sense of wonder. A sense of astonishment, actually, at being here at all. And at just the simple things that can really give our lives richness, beauty, a dynamism which is often lacking in the flatness of familiarity. It really is the case of if we keep bringing the same material 
same psychological stances, repeatedly to experience, what do we create? We create a flatness in our experience. Yeah. There's a phenomenon which I'm sure, no matter what age you are, most of us have encountered, which is the phenomenon that um, life seems to get quicker the older you get. Ever had that one? You know, that when you had these child, when you look back at childhood, you think of these, I don't know if you did, but I certainly have these idyllically long summers when you were free from school and all these things. And they seemed to last for an eternity, and then the sudden day coming, you had to go back to school. Um, but they seemed enormously long, and that. And as you get older, the years seem to pass by even quicker. Now, psychologically, part of the reason for that is, is because we're not experiencing anything new. Yeah. Is that the, more, the older we get, the more of our repeated patterns we bring to our experience, and so as a consequence of that, we're not really experiencing anything anew. It's like being there, seen it, and done it. And it's only often when you're put into a situation or an environment which is completely unfamiliar that time seems to extend again. It's stretched out slightly, which is often a good reason for travelling, going to other environments, into other cultures, other languages, um, where you don't feel quite at home and can't bring all of that kind of historical stuff to bear on where you are. So coming back to the practice, part of the practice that we're engaging in, and we'll engage in properly tomorrow, after the breakfast session, I'll give you instructions on this, is learning to encounter our experience, which is fluctuating, impermanent, evanescent, and like bubbles, often floating on a river. Learning to bring attention to bear on that, on its fleetingness, on its real impermanence and to do it with curiosity and to do it with interest now one of the kind of I don't know, more provocative things I threw, threw out last night I said are you interested yeah. or I could have said are you curious or are you paying attention yeah, because this is what it's about the stuff we've been doing today and we'll do for the last session and the very first session in the morning is really about learning to at least bring the mind into some focus. To bring it into a focus where I can start to pay attention, no matter how minimal. To start to quieten the mind down a little bit. So that I can then direct it to what is going to arise Sometimes very fleetingly in experience. Sometimes it will arise and pass away a lot slower, but sometimes it's very, very fleeting. That you can learn to bring a quality of attention to bear on the simple phenomena, such as the breath and what's going on in the breath, or what is going on in the body, or what is going on in our soundscape, what's happening in our environment, and learning, in a sense, to pay interest in that and to observe it, but without being pulled into it. And to engage in something which I'll speak quite a lot about, which is, in technical Buddhist terms, it's it's a lovely word. Why do I like you all to learn? It's called papancha. It trips off the tongue quite nicely, that one. Um, but the word means mental proliferation. Actually, another way of translating it is obsession. We get into obsessional thinking. We hear a sound, but we don't just hear it as a sound, do we? What kind of bird is that? And it's irritating me now. <laughs> yeah. Or the way that a thought can be literally mentally expanded from just something which arises as a mere thought and will actually do something because it's impermanent, which we often try to arrest, which is it will pass away, we take it and we run with it. 
Um, this is the stuff of sleepless nights, which I'm sure some of us have had at some times, where your thought patterns are literally proliferating. You know, they're going round and round and round and round and round, and thought is trying to cure thought. And all it does is produce yet more thought. Yeah. Now, this is all the stuff of Papancha. I'll talk about this, as I say, in more detail. What we are attempting to do in the approach which I'm suggesting here is we attempt to see the initial perception, the initial thought, the initial stimuli as simply that, without the papancha. Now, that's easier than it sounds, isn't it? Yeah. Just to hear the thought, just to perceive, you know, just to perceive the thought, hear the sound, feel the bodily sensation, whatever it is, without actually adding what the Buddha says is the second dart. Because there is the phenomena, that which is arising, and then there is everything else that we do with it. And out of that, we will often create vast edifices of pain and distress and suffering for ourselves, which I suppose at least it has the advantage of making us feel something, um, but often feel extremely miserable in, as a consequence of that. So it's trying to return to the original phenomena. So I'm saying it's easier said than done. Now the doing is the constant bringing interest and curiosity to whatever phenomena is arising. With the consequence of understanding that it will arise and pass away. If we don't do this papuncturing, this obsessional thinking that goes on. So this is much more a movement towards being rather than thinking. And one of the things that we will do, and again I will explore this in more detail because it's quite important, one of the other things that we do is we'll try and establish our being through thinking. You know, so much so that we think you know, that the, the thoughts are us. Yeah. rather than the thoughts being merely contingent arising phenomena that will pass away. I mean, how many of us go to that? We'll say, well, well, just what I'm thinking at the moment just happens to be a thought that's arising and passing away. Now we take it deadly seriously, don't we? Every thought that arises must be taken seriously. In fact, it's all very personal. <laughs> and I'm kind of sending this up a little bit to make a point because... In making it very personal and making it very important and making it us, we solidify it. We, in much more technical terms, reify these things. When actually, all thought really should come with a little label just passing through. <laughs> That's all it does. It's just passing through. However, the moment we start to take it seriously, then we get into this obsessional thinking about it. So thoughts themselves, and I'll keep saying this, it would be rather mantra, you'll probably get fed up with me by the end of the week, but one of the things that I really want to say about this is, and I will keep saying, is that thoughts are not you. There's no reason to take them personally, and certainly, and this is the important point, they are not your enemies. And to put it bluntly, there is no magic vacuum cleaner that's going to come along and clean all the thoughts out. <laughs> you know, there's no way that we're going to hoover them all out. So that, if that is the case, that thinking is not going to stop, and actually this is one of the big mythologies and misconceptions about what meditational practice is, about, which is actually thinking nothing. Now, the Buddha never spoke about becoming blank. You know, what he spoke about was, how do you deal with this, given that this is what is going on and will continue to go on with you? Now, this is the way that, if you like, in a sense, in a modern, in a modern way, that we are hardwired. We are hardwired to think. You know? And actually, for the most part, that does a very, very good job, doesn't it? In a lot of life situations, thinking is very, very appropriate. You know, if you want to get here 
to do your retreat or catch your train or anything, you think about it and you organize and you plan and do all the things which are necessary. However, with many emotional states, thinking has no purchase on it whatsoever. In fact, what you do is you dig a deeper hole for yourself the more you think about it. So there is a use to thought and it's very important and there is a place where in a sense it has no purchase and it can be just allowed to arise and pass away, to do its thing, to be its impermanence in its arising and passing away. However, we often get into this compulsive habit of arresting thought, of actually stopping it identifying with it. And identifying is often creating, again, another big problem for us, identity, out of it. I am this sort of person. Pigeonholing ourselves. Identifying with particular thought patterns. We can even identify even with a set of symptoms and become that as our identity. So there are many, many ways that we're creating identity. And identity becomes a problem when it becomes fixed. Now when the Buddha is saying, as as I said, pick up on this in detail as we go through the week. When the Buddha says everything is impermanent, he really does mean it. Everything is impermanent. It's not everything is impermanent except me. (laughs) Which is... In a sense, what the little voice in our head often tells us, isn't it? Everything is impermanent except me. <laughs> I'm the exception. <laughs> I mean, when you put that in, in that way, and I know I put it in a very jokey fashion, I mean, it does sound absolutely ludicrous, doesn't it? Yeah. Everything is changing except me. <laughs> so, as a corollary to this, and this other aspect which often I think gets much mystification around it the idea of not self or actually mistranslation is no self is actually saying even you are not fixed even you are a process that has no essential fixity to it and I'll leave you with the good news because I've given you lots of depressing news tonight hasn't I so I'll leave you the good news for this evening, which is that is actually the very good news. This is the optimism. Because if you were fixed, let's all go home. Because you're stuck with whatever nature you've got. Yeah. Liberation in the Buddha's sense of it, of liberating ourselves from these deeply, deeply conditioned habit patterns which bind us to continual rounds of repeated pain and distress and misery it wouldn't be possible to get out of that. It wouldn't be possible to step outside of that if we had some kind of intrinsic fixed nature that was for you know, eternity. It was there for eternity. You know, Like you for eternity. I can't think of anything worse for me. <laughs> Here you are, stuck forever. Well, the Buddha isn't saying that at all. What he's saying is everything is impermanent, including you, which means that change is always possible. And that change is possible now, and you can do it now. But, and so I pick up on tomorrow night, you've got to learn to pay attention to what's going on. Without curiosity, without interest, and without paying attention, you will not be able to change this continuum. It will change, because all things will change. But it won't change in a direction which will lead to the diminishment of the dukkha that I spoke about, this idea of wanting things that were not possible for us to have, wanting fixity, wanting permanence, wanting certainty. You know, and I say these words very lightly in a way in front of you all, but I would like you to try and examine them in, in relationship to your own life. Where do you look for certainty in your life? Where do you look for fixity? Is it in your partner? Is it in your situation? Is it in your friends? Is it in yourself? You know, because we all do it perhaps in slightly different ways or, or an amalgam of these things. But we're all perhaps looking for a certainty which is, isn't possible actually to get in life. 
And if you think about that, there's a tremendous pathos to that. If that is our situation, and I really just want, don't want you to take it as a fait accompli, that you have to go away and look at it for yourself and look at it in the areas of your life, if you're not taking it as a fait accompli, there's a tremendous pathos to it because it means that we're condemned to be looking for something that we will never actually find at all. You know, you've probably done this from a very young age, like all of us, looking for something fixed, looking for something certain in your life. And we'll perhaps go on looking for it, and you'll go on looking for it in things and people and situations and circumstances. And, oh dear, life never gives me what I want. Yeah. But you know, joking aside, there's a, a huge pathos to that. That if that is the human condition of what we're condemned often to do, when there is another way of living life, if only we learn to pay attention. Okay, I'll finish on that this evening. <laughs> okay. Now, that's not to foreclose questions, because I want to throw it open for some questions just to see if there are any. Um... Yeah, John, um, is, is this kind of notion of acceptance, um, is that a notion, I'm thinking about Dukkha and suffering and distress, mm-hmm. we accept the things that happen to us? <clears throat> Is that a way of approaching um, it is. the notion of impermanence? It is. Uh, the actual word I would use, although acceptance isn't a bad word at all, the actual word I would use, which is actually there within, if you like, the Buddhist vocabulary, is equanimity. Yeah. It's having equanimity towards that which arises. In other words, if good things happen, the mind remains happy. If bad things happen, the mind remains happy. That is really what it's about. Um, and in fact, um, you can see equanimity as being a synonym for nibbana, for the, the final state, is where the mind is equanimous, no matter what is going on. Yeah. It doesn't mean that it won't act, because we will continue to act where action is possible, but it won't be constantly pulled out of balance. And if you think of, we think of our own minds with our lack of acceptance or lack of equanimity. We're constantly pulled out of balance by the, you know, the, the machinations and vacillations in the world, aren't we, and within our environment and within ourselves. We just, you know, we react continuously. And that's the word, really, I think we should be examining, because when there is reaction, there is no acceptance. Yeah. If, you can accept something and still react. And it's almost like the idea, then, then what you do, resign yourself. Well, well, it's not stoicism, let's put it that way. It's not sort of resignation as as in a stoical resignation towards it. It's act where action is possible. So in other words, with equanimity, action is possible. Reaction is not possible. In other words, I can act because I see clearly. Whereas in reaction, there's no seeing clearly. It's, it's, it's the kind of stuff we're all engaged in, kind of knee-jerk reactions to whatever happens, happens to us. So the obsessional kind of acting. Yes. Acting out without thinking about what you're doing, just going into the same patterns over and over. That's right. It feeds into those patterns. And of course, what the patterns tend to be are patterns of attraction or patterns of repulsion. You know, movements, you know, reactions to move against or away from something or to move towards it. You know, if it's nice, I'll move towards it. If it's nasty, I'll move away from it. Um, and those are kind of broad spectrum um, words. But you know, basically the pattern is that way. And so the pattern of reactivity is exactly that. It allows for no action in the sense of action that occurs through seeing clearly. And one of the things that's very, very highly prized in the early, in the early tradition is the seeing clearly. You know, seeing with wise attention. You know, and I'll speak a lot about this anyway. Um, but that helps... To, sorry. It's giving yourself time then to... Developing the way of giving yourself time to not react. Kind of like a little pause so you can kind of see yeah. what's... You can almost see yourself starting to react. 
but then somehow you develop some measure of <clears throat> ability of well, I think that's where meditational practice, and again, I'll say something more about this, perhaps even in the very first session in the morning, because actually one of the things that, that we're doing in meditational practice is we're creating a laboratory, and the laboratory is ourselves. Yeah. Now, what normally happens in ordinary life is things are happening so quickly, aren't they, that any thought that occurs in the head you react to, you know, sorry, I often joke about this and say, you don't, for example, see desire arising for a chocolate bar. What you do is, in ordinary life is find yourself eating a chocolate bar. <laughs> yeah. There's a big difference, isn't there? Here we give ourselves the chance to see that arising of desire. I'm giving you a very crude example, but you see the arising of desire and not to have to react to it, to see it slip over and pass away because that's actually what happens. Desire will arise, and it will pass away. Now, it might come back again, and it will rise, and it will pass away. It'll do that continuously. Now, in ordinary life, we don't get a chance to do that. We don't get a chance to see it's arising and passing away, because we almost immediately react and find ourselves engaged in the behaviour. So if somebody annoys me, I will retaliate, because it's that quick. Those are things that are occurring. If something I like, I'll try and grab it. I'll try and get it. Here we get a chance to observe that phenomena. Now, I'm not saying you won't react, because you will a lot of the time, but you will get a chance to observe these phenomena arising and hopefully passing away without getting caught up in obsessional thought. Now, this is all very idealistic, because you will find yourself getting caught up in obsessional thought. But the moment you recognise that you're caught up in thinking about whatever it is, that is a moment of awareness. That is a moment of mindfulness when you bring yourself back to whatever the object is, and usually the breath in this case. So that's a moment when you've observed yourself reacting and pulled yourself back. So this is why the meditational um, process is so important. It's not meant to be a substitute for life. It's actually something to take out into life um, because it helps us to slow down the processes and to see the processes a lot more clearly. You know, and perhaps sometimes in daily life when something arises you might see it arising and not react on it you know, because of that training yeah. so it's giving yourself the opportunity the chance and then what happens is if you don't react you get a chance to act perhaps not engage in it and that's an action not engaging is an action in something and that's why the, the whole meditational process and the whole reason for you know, raison d'etre, really, behind Vipassana is actually for something that you actually take out into life, ultimately. It's a long answer again to a short question. <laughs> Any other quick... Well, I would say quick, because I'll give quick answers to... <laughs> Liberation is a different way of being with what is. Yeah, that's what it is. It's being liberated from habit patterns. Really, that's what we're speaking about mostly. I mean, that's what the early... It's very much in the early tradition. Not so much in later tradition. It becomes much more religious in later traditions in Buddhism. But in the very early tradition, it's literally being liberated from those debilitating habit patterns which keep us bound to, if you like, forms of existence. Yeah. The main psychological wellsprings for those forms of existence that we mainly find ourselves in, out of which all of our unwholesome psychology arises, is greed, aversion and delusion. That's what the Buddha identifies with. And it's really dealing with particularly, initially, the psychopathology of desire, the psychopathology of craving. And that's what it's centred on to start with. That will lead you into understanding the aversion, ultimately the delusion out of which it all arises. And all of our psychology, which um, from a Buddhist perspective really goes back to three wholesome roots or three unwholesome roots. Three unwholesome roots are the ones I've just spoken about, which give rise to (coughs) anger, 
greed and so on and so forth as being psychological conditions. There is a, a liberative condition, if you like, which is based on three wholesome roots, which are the absolute antithesis, of course, to the unwholesome. So instead of greed, we have generosity. Instead of aversion, we have friendliness, kindness, compassion. And instead of delusion, we have understanding or insight into the way things are. And that is the difference. One is not liberated, which is that which is based on the unwholesome psychology. And one is liberated, which is based on the wholesome psychology. And if you like, um, one way of putting it is there is one world seen in two different ways. You you can either live it with a liberated mind, or you can live with it in the mind with the mindset that we more often than not dwell in this world with, which is that of the unwholesome psychological. And so liberation is a mental liberation. Desire with grasping? Well, desire will lead to grasping. Necessarily? Um, yes. <laughs> it will lead to clinging. Um, I'll go into this a lot more thoroughly because this is a very, very important element. Because even that which we don't like is, in a sense, clung to, grasped after. So we desire to avoid as much as we desire to have. And in that, action. Pardon? but it might motivate action. Some forms of desire. I mean, there's many, many different words used, but the one that's primarily used is almost entirely negative in its connotation, which is that which leads to grasping, both after, you know, both in the sense of wanting to avoid and wanting to have something. But I will go into this because this, this is an important theme of what we're looking at. Because it's actually breaking the cycle of desire, this psychopathology of craving. Okay, uh, okay. I'm, I'm sort of disputing mm. equating desire and craving. Also, mm. you're, you seem to be using them synonymously. Well, the word can be translated either way. I mean, the word in, in the original language, in, in Pali and Sanskrit, is, basically means thirst, unquenchable thirst. Which is craving. Which is craving and desire. Oh, even in Western languages, sometimes it's often used in those ways. In certain psychological traditions, for example, um, desire is often seen as an unquenchable thirst as well. It has no terminal end. You know, desire desires to desire. <laughs> yeah. I, I, my personal feeling is mm. that there should be a place for wanting or desire without it being necessarily a negative. Well, there are exceptions. I mean, I'll mention one exception to you because there is a paradox to this, obviously, because actually one of the things that we desire to do is end desire in Buddhist practice. Exactly. Desire to to, to, to come to a retreat, for example. Desire to wake up. up. And those are all healthy manifestations. Yes, but the different word is used in in the original languages for for that. No, not at all. Because it's just making a distinction between healthy forms of desire and unhealthy ones. When the word, this is the word I'll use, and again, you'll hear me say it throughout the week, so don't worry if you don't pick it up. Oh, I don't know. When the word tanha is used, which is the unwholesome form, it's almost always used. I think I've only ever found one exception in the whole of the canon um, where it's used positively. 99.9% it's always used in this unwholesome sense is that it's something that cannot be satisfied. And that's why it's an unquenchable thirst. So in other words, you think about this just in terms of your ordinary life, it's that desire to keep on wanting something that's going to provide supposedly satisfaction. But when you get that thing, it doesn't provide satisfaction. Yeah, there might be, you know, say, thing. I mean, it could be person, situation, job, career, you know, whatever you know, person to be with. When you get there, desire isn't satiated or craving isn't satiated. It still wants something else and will move on. So it it displaces continuously, looking for a terminal point when there is no terminal point at all. 
whereas the desire for liberation is something that can be achieved. That's right, that's exactly. Yes, it's, it's, well, it's, it's, it's quite complex because the psychological issues behind it are quite complex. But, but primarily, it's that, that those things which can be satisfied and those which, things which can't. So, for example, there can be wants. For example, there is a word which is used for thirst in an ordinary sense. You know, which is not tamna, so that can be satisfied. So if I have papasa, I can be satisfied by a drink of water. If I have tamna, though, I can never satisfy it. You know, and I actually displace onto objects which will actually never provide the satisfaction. Whereas if I have these wholesome forms, in other words, perhaps the desire to sit down and meditate, engage in practice, aim at liberation, all of these things, ultimately the Buddha is saying those can be satisfied. Those can actually find a resolution. Whereas the sorts of things that we normally have provide, there can be no resolution at all to them at all. They will just go on and on and on. And I'm sure we've all experienced this in our lives at some point, haven't we? Just you say, well, I mean, I always call this the mythology of if, the mythology of if only I had, or if only I was with. If only I had X, I would be happy kind of mythology you tell yourself or if only I was with I would be happy you know you have to mark your own spots here Um, and it's a mythology because when you get that thing how long does it last even if you do acquire it it lasts for a very short period of time it can be like that (laughs) until you're on to the next if only I had Um, and that is the endlessness of it that's what the Buddha is indicating by the endlessness of it. It just goes on and on and on and on. And it will find no terminal resolution either. You know, whereas the desire for liberation, although it might be difficult, is something which is capable of being achieved. Yeah, that's the difference. And I'll speak more about this as we go through. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.